families. This is Emily Penrod, and I have Dr. Rebecca Lundwall and Dr. Teresa Gabrielson with me again today. On our last episode, they were here to talk to us about young children with autism and gave us some valuable advice and benefit of their research. They're both associated with Brigham Young University. And again, thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invite. Glad to be here. Okay, now I've a, a quote I have heard as a special ed teacher is if you know one person with autism, you know one person with autism. Can you comment on that? So that's actually part of what makes it difficult to do research in the area of autism is that we have individuals that are just very different from each other. And I imagine it also makes it very difficult to find interventions that will work because they have to be to some extent individualized. So I've actually um, found a lot of success working with families by telling them that I know autism, but I don't know your child very well. And that seems to open up a lot of trust with the family um, because they don't like their They don't want their child to be labeled. They don't want their child to be treated differently. Um, Sometimes they really resist having people know that their child has autism because they don't want them labeled or treated differently. One of the unfortunate realities, though, is when a a child has autism, other people are treating them differently in many ways because they don't understand why they are saying the things that they say or behaving the way that they do. Part of the variation and individual variation in autism is that there's not one part of the brain and there's not one gene and there's not one brain process that's disrupted. It's all over. It's in um, a lot of different areas of the brain, as far as we can tell from research. There are patterns and we know kind of where to look, but Each individual has different genetic susceptibilities, maybe different biological or physiological susceptibilities, and then they all are interacting with a different environment. And so, yeah, it looks different in every person who has it, although we kind of recognize it by the same patterns um, or categories of symptoms, if you will. You know, and last time you talked about younger children, And what about parent support groups? Would you recommend those? I think they're they're always my number one recommendation is that you contact uh, a good local uh, support group. So every state has an organization. Sometimes it's called Family Voices. In Utah, it's called the Utah Parent Center. So it may have a name similar to that. But these are organizations that are started by parents of children with disabilities who are further down the road than you are. So they've already encountered the school system and they know how to help the school system work best for a child. They've already found where all the dentists are who are good with children who have disabilities. They know which pediatricians are helpful um, when you have a lot of comorbid 
disorders or things that aren't part of autism, but that can come with it that, that occur frequently in children with autism. They've, they've, they know how to access government services. They just are such a good source of information and quite literally support for you because they've gone through a lot of the emotional reactions that you're going through when your child has a new diagnosis or when your child's a teenager and all of a sudden all of, all of the game seems to be changing with adolescents and they've been through that and they can help you navigate that. Sometimes they're just literally a shoulder to cry on um, when you need someone to just understand what your life is like and what the challenges are that you're facing. Sounds like a very valuable resource. Uh, you mentioned teenagers. Uh, sometimes people aren't diagnosed with autism until they are in their teens. And uh, I understand BYU has done some research on that. Yeah. And I think that that is, well, it's ongoing research. And so we don't have conclusions yet, but we're beginning to get some insights. But I think it's especially common to be diagnosed later when there aren't intellectual disabilities. So intellectual disabilities don't necessarily come with autism, and that's something many people outside the autism community do not realize. But many of those children are so bright that they are pretty good at masking their systems their symptoms and, you know, working within the system. But sometimes when they become teenagers, especially girls, there are so many more social pressures on them. Girls in our society are expected to be quite social and be able to read social cues. And this can, this can be particularly difficult. And so sometimes that's when really the symptoms they've probably had all along really start to come out. And so we're doing a study with girls and women, so 14 years or older, and kind of looking back at their developmental history and seeing maybe when the first red flags are so that we can better educate the community. Maybe what are, maybe autism looks different in girls than it does in guys. Maybe there are different red flags that we ought to be looking for. So do you feel like more girls go undiagnosed than boys? With higher IQ, yes. It, it's the, the common wisdom has been that if a girl has autism, she's more severely affected. But we now think that that's because those are the ones we were identifying. We think a lot of girls have slipped under the radar because they're better at imitating um, and they are better at pretend play, and they do still have some restrictive repetitive behaviors, but they tend to look a little bit more typical. Um, they're not as odd. They're, they're intense and a little bit more than others, other girls might get into, but they, they can pass kind of. What we find as they get older is that effort to pass as someone who has typical social skills just becomes overwhelming. And the, the diagnostic criteria has changed to say that we might see symptoms when the individual's capacity doesn't quite meet the demand that's put on them, which is what Dr. Lundwell was describing happens in adolescence. The social demand becomes so great and the capacity is just not equal um, to meeting that demand. And you also mentioned 
the treatment would change as they become teenagers. So even if they were diagnosed early at a young age. So describe the the treatment for teenagers compared to younger children. Well, we talked about very young children focusing on things like language, and we mentioned toilet training, which is a big one, and just the initial social skills. And often we can get those going pretty well. When we have early intervention, we can get a lot of gains early on. And our goal is always to get children with autism in um, as much of a mainstream situation as we can. And many children with autism are fully mainstreamed. They still need support, but they're fully functioning within a typical classroom. And that goes pretty well through elementary. And then adolescence comes around and everything seems to change. And it's not just physiological changes, but school changes. There's now seven teachers instead of one who knows you really well. Now there's seven who have to get to know you really well. And there's things like you have to navigate a locker and you have to navigate a class schedule and you have to um, deal with social interactions that happen so fast. And you uh, a lot of the social information at that age is happening in eye gaze and glances and looks and facial expressions and reading the subtext underneath what people are saying based on the way they're saying it. And uh, individuals with autism have not learned how to do that very well. And so they start to become more and more socially isolated um, as people reject them over and over again. And so now we have a lot of teenagers with autism who have a lot of depression symptoms and a lot of them think about suicide because they are so depressed. It's kind of a myth to say that people with autism don't care about social interaction. They do. And it hurts when they're socially isolated. So now some of the treatment we're looking at is therapy for depression, which could be Cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the more successful methods with teens with autism because it's not a lot of talking about your feelings. It's focusing on changing a thought or changing a behavior, which then can change a feeling the way you're feeling. So you can actually feel better if you change things you say to yourself or thoughts that you have, or if you change your behaviors, you, you can learn to feel better. It takes longer than an individual that doesn't have autism. So these are kind of long-term therapeutic relationships that you get into. And it's part of the natural process of separating from family is now your teen has a therapist that can help them learn how to cope. And we all know how difficult it may be at times for teenagers to work closely with their families for the things that they need to work on. They need their families for support but they may not look to their families for help necessarily. So what is the best way for parents to support their teenagers with autism? So part of it, social skills are huge. Um, social skills groups are great. Uh, sometimes you can't find them. They, they look first in your school. Um, they should be running in your school. If that's not available, there's some in the community. If you're not able to find those groups, then there are actually quite a few books and um, online programs for developing social skills or learning how to develop social skills. You can find them on Amazon. They're not hard to find. 
but there's there's two things we look on direct instruction which is where the groups come in and where the the books can come in like here are the social rules sometimes we call it the hidden curriculum that no one ever teaches you but a typically developing child will be paying attention and kind of learning subconsciously how social interactions work an individual with autism is is not picking up on that information, is missing it. So we need to fill in with direct instructions. Here are the rules for how to start a conversation or how to end a conversation, for example. But that's only one part of it. The other part is social experience. And individuals with autism tend to get really nervous about situations where they don't know what's going to be expected of them because they they don't have enough experience, they don't have enough positive experience, they don't know what to do. And if they have a bad experience, they tend to want to avoid that because that's a very uncomfortable feeling. So they don't like new experiences, but we have to give them incentives to get out and get more social experience, at least at the same level that their peers are. So finding ways to, and this is where the ABA comes in again, it's like, okay, so what would be a good reason for you to go out and do this social event that you really don't want to do and is very uncomfortable for you? Like, would it be access to um, computer time? Would it be extra time with mom or dad? Or would it be um, a, a book that you've wanted? Or, you know, whatever. We need to find a way to give them a reason to do something they really don't want to do. And then we've given them the experience. And then they've got that in their repertoire. And it's not quite as frightening for them because they've done it once and they kind of know what to expect. So if we get to do them a second time, then they're better able to adapt to the little changes that may occur in a new situation. And we're just building experience and skill. But most importantly, we're building social success um, for them. I've had two experiences with this, one as a special ed teacher at a high school and a mother advocated, we created a class just at this mother's request and it was social skills, just mm -hmm. to do what you, the direct instruction you mentioned. And we started, in, you know, that class was initiated by a mother proactively seeking what her son needed. And then when I worked at uh, Heritage Schools in Provo, we used a program from uh, developed in the Los Angeles area called the Peers mm -hmm. Program. Mm -hmm. And again, very direct and specific instruction with role-playing, homework assignments on everything from how to initiate a conversation, how to enter a conversation that's already in progress, it was very, I was very impressed with it. So we, we use the UCLA peers curriculum as well in part of my research at BYU. And it's the favorite thing we do every week for my therapists and myself, my grad students. We look forward to it each week. Some of our favorite parts of the curriculum are humor, um, understanding humor and how to read that, that maybe your joke was not understood or appreciated by the, your conversational partner. And the parents really like how to handle disagreements. That's part of the curriculum as well. Oh, well, that's one I think that everyone needs. I know. <laughs> and what, you know, the parents say, parents are a big part of that curriculum. And they say, we had no idea it was so complicated because 
we just internalize social rules without even really thinking about them because we've been paying attention to social information. And these teenagers with autism have not been paying attention because of the way their brains are wired. And they missed all that as, as younger children. And so there are a lot of complicated rules to remember, but it does help them. Parents tell us that their kids enter into conversations more than they used to after they've been participating in that, in that type of a group. That's great. I know a lot of parents have frustrations with getting their teenagers to get up in the morning, clean the rooms, just just take care of their own personal hygiene, remembering to shower, completing their homework, and then remembering to turn it in. And that's all part of something called executive functioning. So which students with attention deficit disorders are you know, we, we focus there, but what about students with autism? So that actually is a brain function too. And it's one of the later brain functions to fully develop. We're always developing executive function skills, even like a little toddler figuring out how to get what she wants is an executive function skill. But as we get older, part of the transition in adolescence is all of a sudden someone's in seventh grade and we expect them to navigate multiple um, teachers, multiple homework assignments, personal hygiene issues, getting more homework than they've ever had before um, completed and turned in, even getting out the door in the morning and getting ready for school in the morning becomes more complicated when you're an adolescent. And so because the executive function skills aren't developing at the same rate or at the same time as a typically developing child, we need to, we need to support that. So we use visual schedules, we use checklists, we use alarms, we use reminders. Um, when kids have access to phones, there's a lot of things you can build into the phone to help a child remember it's time to do this, it's time to do this, here's your checklist, mark it off. All of these external supports can be used to help a child navigate their day. So getting up getting up in the morning, getting your shower routine done. Other other strategies like putting all the personal hygiene products into a basket that have to be used every day and then have an identical basket right next to it. And as the child goes through, as the teen goes through each of those personal hygiene items, so it could be shampoo, conditioner, deodorant, whatever. And if they've used all of those items and they've moved them into the other basket, they know they're finished. That's another kind of visual schedule. Um, just that's easy to do. Um, once you know how to do it, I've seen parents put checklists on the shower walls. So one, one, one of them was called rinse your hair, rinse your hair, rinse your hair. <laughs> just, just to remind the teenage girl that she needed to rinse her hair, not just wash it. These are things that you don't think about, but they're just part of executive function, remembering all the steps to the routine and doing them. Eventually, you learn how to do them kind of subconsciously, but until that happens, we need to support it with all of these external helps and devices. And then as, as routines get built and followed in repetition, then we kind of fade out that support a little bit to see if the individual can, can start to fill in parts of the routine themselves, if it's learned well enough that they can do it on their own. Have you found it true that parents of teenagers with autism may need to just expect that their child will be living at home longer than children, their neurotypical children, or how to talk about that transition from high school to college. 
I'm not sure that you necessarily have to say they have to live at home longer. I do think it's true they need support longer. So you, you've taken, you know, the, uh, someone's grown up with their family supporting them at home and their teachers supporting them at school. And everyone's pretty much actively looking out for their needs and supporting their needs and getting used to what they need and providing that. And then when you take that individual and put them in a college environment, nobody's really looking out for them anymore. Um, now those supports are available, but you have to know to ask for them. And we always tell people this. And then one year I realized people with autism don't initiate very well socially. Like they're not, they're not likely to reach out and ask for help. And that's what we're asking them to do in a college setting. So this is where parents can help support their child in being more successful by just saying, let's, let's call the university accessibility center and set up an appointment. Parents don't necessarily don't really have access to their child's educational records or medical records or even any of those decisions after age 18 unless they have legal guardianship, which is something to consider. Um, if you have a teenager with autism, it usually needs to be put in place before they're 18 um, with a lawyer. It can be done later. It's just more difficult. But whether you have guardianship or not, you can still support by helping the the student hook up with resources at the college level. There's often BYU has a support group for students with autism. You can um, have a semi-supported housing uh, situation where they may be in a, in a dormitory, but there is somebody who's, you know, the residential assistant, I think is what they're called, the RAs, are really kind of actively monitoring that this person's doing well and can help support them if they're not doing well, like if they're not eating, for example, or they don't know how to do their laundry. These are all the things we never think about because we just do all these functions. And when a typically developing child gets to college, I keep saying child, but they're adults by now, when they get to college, they can learn by what other people are learning and they can pick it up pretty quickly, how to take care of yourself, how to shop for groceries, how to do your laundry, how to manage your money, how to get to class, how to get your homework done, how to access tutors, how to get help when you need it. And individuals with autism aren't picking up on that as fast. So they need us to help connect them with all those resources. And they are adults now. So we need to form their own support networks that you know, we're going to be their cheerleaders as their parents, but we need to introduce them to new support networks that they can learn to build on their own. It sounds to me like a positive, loving, close relationship with your child is imperative for a parent, whether they get guardianship or not. If they have that relationship where the child knows their parent has their best interest at heart and they want that help, that sounds like it's well, it's always needed in any parent-child relationship, but especially in this case. Well, and that's true even if they're not in college. And college isn't for everybody, whether they have autism or not. The point is, what does what does this young adult want to do? And starting at about age 14, the school system is designed to start working on transition with with individuals who have disabilities. And it's it's kind of a formal process where we start asking the, the student and involving the student in the meetings and the decisions for like, what do you want to 
be when you grow up? What do you want to do? Where do you want to live? And we all start working towards those goals with the students kind of wishes and desires guiding it. In many cases, that's at age 14, the IEP team will begin involving outside agencies like vocational rehabilitation. Has that group been helpful with students with autism? So they, they have what most parents talk about in disability world, and this is not just for autism, is falling off the cliff at age 18. When an individual trans, transitions from the school system, which has been kind of nurturing and caring um, and accommodating and providing specialized instruction all along, and then they leave that school system, they're now in the adult system which functions in a whole different manner. And the adult system has not yet gotten to the point where they're specialized in autism. They specialize in disabilities in general. And sometimes that doesn't fit for an individual with autism. So we're, we're getting, they're starting to be newer agencies. And, and there's one called Specialist Stern. And it focus, its focus is let's match a person with autism who has some pretty great skills with a job that's good for them. And let's work with the employers so that they can, you know, pass the job interview to start with and that the employers can understand that there are some things that they'll need to to support for this employee, but the employee can be really, really valuable in their organization. What is the name of that organization again? It's called Specialistern. It's, if you were to say it in English, you'd say Specialistern, but it's all one word. It's, they do have some operations here in Utah through the Columbus Center in Salt Lake City. Um, but they're it, they're operating out of Europe, but they've branched out into the United States. Well, this is interesting. So do they have a, a link? It would be good to add their yeah. website yeah. as well. Yeah, I'll add that for you. That is awesome. Good to know. I ha- have heard of companies that actively recruit employees with autism because of their attention to detail. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, that's exactly what the employer is looking for. So Dr. Lundball's study has been looking just at females, so half of the equation, but looking at females and what their experiences are as they've gone through adolescence and college and work and social relationships. Do you, What would you like to add? The study is ongoing and we haven't collected a lot of information, but I was just thinking as I was listening to you talk that really this is um, adolescence and young adulthood is a difficult transition time, even if you don't have a disability. And um, you still may get some of the same kinds of problems, you know, rebelliousness, um, not wanting your parents involved in your life so much. So I don't think those necessarily go away and just speak to speak to the issue of it's good to have support in place for both the parents and the emerging adult, you know, before they um, experience some of these extra pressures on their lives. We are hearing from some of the women that we have interviewed that um, it can be very frustrating to go from provider to provider and not 
it's very confusing and distressing to know that something is wrong and not know what it is. And, and some of them are just very relieved when um, they learn that really their symptoms look pretty closely matched with autism. And so there's often extra issues there, anxiety and depression, just for the life experiences that they've been having and are currently experiencing. Um, my thought, too, is with medication, what I am familiar with, medication given to uh, students with autism, it sounds like it's more to treat these related things like anxiety and depression. Is that that's, correct? Yeah, that's true. There's, there's, no, there's no medication that makes autism better. The medications that are sometimes used are to help life be better. So it might be to help with symptoms of depression or attention or aggression or um, anxiety. And there are medications that can help with that. And if we can do that, that's awesome. Um, because the autism symptoms themselves aren't going to go away, but some of these other symptoms that we can address with medication can get better. It's tricky. Uh, because brains are wired a little bit differently, some of these medications that work specifically on brain um, processes and functions don't work exactly the way we expect them to. Sometimes there's a paradoxical effect where a medication that would usually make some children calmer and sleepy might make a child with autism hyperactive. So we have to be really careful. You have to work very closely with your physician. And in some cases, we really need a psychiatrist who specializes in medications for psychological conditions because they want to start slow with a medication and, or start low, excuse me, start low and go slow and not try to mix a lot of medications because they, they just may not have the exact effect we're used to seeing. Um, with typical children. And sometimes we're, we are treating physiological conditions as well with medication and that uh, sometimes medication interactions will occur. Um, but just really a lot of extra care needs to be taken with medications in a person with autism to make sure we're not making anything less functional or less comfortable for them. Sometimes the Sometimes what we want is a medication to make a really disruptive behavior go away. And it's not usually going to do that. It may make us, it may make someone less irritable, which is helpful. It makes them less likely to engage in aggression, for example. Um, but there's no medication to make someone not aggressive. And we can make life better for them so they don't have to communicate their frustration with aggression. That could be behavioral treatment. That could be environmental modifications. It might be medical management. Maybe there's pain going on somewhere that we don't know about or that a child, even, even individuals that do have adequate language sometimes don't have very good pragmatic language. And so they can't tell us what's wrong. Even though they have good vocabulary, they can't tell us where the pain is. And so sometimes it's a matter of really good medical investigation to make the person quite literally more comfortable so that they're less irritable, so they don't have as many disruptive behaviors. Okay, that explains a lot. When we talked before the interview about toolkits that are very useful on the website Autism Speaks, if you could just 
explain a little bit more about those. And I'm just going to remind everyone that all of these links will be on my website, uh, in support of families.com. Go ahead. I'm so glad you asked about that. So Autism Speaks is the largest autism advocacy organization, and their website kind of reflects that. It's huge, and it's a little tricky to navigate, in my opinion. But there's one section called the Autism Speaks Toolkits that I absolutely love. And if you go to that website, Autism Speaks Toolkits, you'll see a list of free toolkits that have been developed through research at the at the in U.S. universities. There's the Autism Treatment Network. Um, there's a couple of other research networks that are involved. And so everything in these toolkits is evidence-based. It's been researched. All the references are there. They're free downloads. You have to register, but they don't really bother me with emails. Um, they just want to know how far... Um, their toolkits are going and how many people they're helping. So they go everywhere from first concern toolkit to first action toolkit to the first 100 days toolkit, all the way up through adolescence and puberty. And um, I'm an adult who's just been diagnosed with autism. What's next for me? There is one on toilet training. There's one on sleep. There's one on going to the dentist. I think there's one now on getting a haircut. I mean, there are so many aspects of life with autism that these autism toolkits can better prepare you for. Some of them are actually for clinicians. There's one on blood draws. You know, if you go to the doctor and you need a blood sample taken, that can be really difficult for someone who's very anxious and doesn't like to be touched. Um, there's a clinician's toolkit for how to approach, and then there's also a family toolkit for how to help prepare your child for a medical procedure such as that. Um, I think they're a fabulous resource. I download all of them and I use them in my autism class that I teach and I recommend them extensively to families. Well, thank you. And thank you both, Dr. Lundwell, Dr. Gabrielson. Thank you so much for your time and your valuable knowledge and information. You're welcome. And I welcome anyone, if they have questions, to leave them. We can get more information. If we get more questions, we can arrange another interview. This has been great. Thanks for inviting us. And thank you for your time. Bye. Okay. Hope you both have a great day. Bye. <laughs>